The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 with me. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, what we want to look at is what are we supposed to be doing as a local church, as the people of God. Let me just read to you this, these first few verses of, uh, of 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start, actually, I'm going to start from verse 1 and just read down through verse 10. Therefore, putting aside, that is stripping off like old dirty clothing, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, on the other hand, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow our hearts now and ask you that you would speak to us. We love it when we come to the Word of God and we hear your voice speaking to us very personally. And so we pray that you would do that in each of our lives this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So what are we supposed to be doing? Well, that answer to that question flows out of another question. That is, who are we? Who are we as the people of God? In verse 5, he says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 4, you have this great description of what the church is and what Christians individually are. Look again at verse 4. And coming to him, that is coming to Christ, as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. What that verse is talking about is worship. This is the characteristic of the church and characteristic of individual believers is we are continually coming to Christ in worship. That's our identity. Uh, That's what sets us apart. That's what God has done in setting us apart. He has made us those who are continually coming to Christ in worship. We worship him. And because of that, because that's who we are, then Peter goes on to talk about the significance of us drawing near to God. In the book of Hebrews, 
uh, it talks about drawing near, and it's always talking about worship, the fact that we live our lives in the very presence of Christ in, in an intentional way, that we actually recognize that our lives are an expression of who we are in Christ Jesus. For example, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, for the law, that is the old covenant under which uh, Moses and all the people of Israel were, he says, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, that is the sacrifices of bull and bulls and goats. He says, these sacrifices will never uh, make you perfect. He says, even though they offered these continually year by year, but they could not make those who approach perfect. And then in verse 22, that same chapter, he says, let us continually be drawing near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then a few chapters before this, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who are coming to God through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this is who we are. This is, this is how you can identify Christians. They come together to worship. The Puritans, one of the um, spiritual disciplines that the Puritans practice, they called holy conversation or holy convention. And it's like we're seated, seated at these tables. There's 10 chairs at each table. So you're sitting there with a few people. And uh, I actually thought about doing this. Let's take five minutes just to talk to each other, <laughs> uh, to get to know the people there and talk to them about the Lord. Share the gospel with them. Uh, share what God's been doing in your life. Uh, share how God's been speaking to your heart in the events of your life and through the word of God. That's what the Puritans called... Um, Holy conversation as something that is a part of growing in the faith is actually expressing to others what God is teaching you. And it's really vital. I'm not going to have you do that because we don't have the time, but I think it's an important practice that we come together as the people of God and talk to one another about the things of God. And sometimes I know we're going through, if we're going through trials and hard times, we hate to, you know, constantly be telling people about how difficult things are so we don't speak to anybody. But the fact is, we, as you heard this morning, are, have been brought together so we could bear one another's burdens and so that we can share what God is doing in our lives to encourage others. This is, and that's all because we are those who draw near to Christ in worship. We come to him in worship. That's what we're constantly doing. That's why we meet here every week, is we come together to worship. We meet in homes during the week in order to come to, together as the people of God and worship. And so he says that because of this, we are, notice what he says about us, we are living stones. That's our identity and our function, that we are living stones. It sounds kind of strange, but what he's talking about is the fact that the church is a living organism. It's not just a physical building or a bunch of physical buildings. It is a living building. It's a living temple because it's made up of living stones, And that's because the chief cornerstone of this building, the church, is Jesus Christ. And so we are living stones. That's our identity and our function. It's based upon our connection with Jesus Christ. And then he says we're a spiritual house under construction, by the way. It isn't finished yet. When the Spirit was poured out, he started this building, and it's not finished yet. And if you look around, you can see that it's not perfected yet either. 
but he's still working on it. And so we are a part of this building that we are living stones that have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. We are the temple of God. That's our corporate identity. In other words, God dwells in his people. He dwells in us us corporately. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a temple that God dwelt in under the Old Covenant. And um, that temple, the manifest presence of God was called the Shekinah, or the Shekinah, the the, the manifest presence of God. They could see this light in the temple. In the book of Ezekiel, while they were in Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel sees in a vision the glory leaving the temple, and it never returned. No more manifest presence of God among his people in Israel. And yet when on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus poured out the Spirit, the presence of God came and dwelt in his people. And so every time you gather together with the people of God, we are gathering together with the living stones that make up the temple of God in which God is dwelling. And then he says we're a holy priesthood. Not only are we the temple, but we are the priests of this temple to offer up sacrifices. Why has God given us this new identity and lofty position? Well, he says it's so that we could offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're a new priesthood. We can approach God and offer him up sacrifices. But they're not bloody sacrifices. They're bloodless sacrifices. They're no longer the blood of bulls and goats. Because the ultimate sacrifice has been offered. That's the Lord Jesus. But we're able to offer and worship sacrifices to God. Listen to this. Philippians 4.18. Paul writes to the Philippians. He's, in, he's in, under house arrest in Rome. And the Philippians were concerned about him, so they sent a man, Epaphroditus, to take things to him that he would need, because that's the only way he could survive. And so Epaphroditus travels to Rome from Philippi, and he brings all these gifts from the believers at Philippi. And then Paul, when he wrote the letter to Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Indeed, I have, I have all. I have everything I need, and I abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. A sweet, now get this, this is what he says about this gift that they sent him. I mean, basic needs that he had. They sent him food and clothing and things like that. There were no iPods or iPads or iPhones or anything like that. This was just the necessities of life, and he says that it was a sweet-smelling aroma. That's an expression from the Old Testament that speaks about sacrifices offered up to God that please God. So he said, this, this, these gifts that you gave me were a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So when we actually care enough about people that we give to meet their needs, it says it's a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of God. And then he says in Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren... That's all of you who are believers by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It says your body is a sacrifice when you offer it to the Lord for him to use. Even if it's all worn out, even if it's it's a bunch of pain, as you give yourself to him, it is an offering that he receives as your expression of worship to him. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of your lips. 
When you praise God, when you sing these songs of praise and the expression of praise of God comes out of your lips because it's coming from your heart, it's a sweet-smelling savor to God. It's an offering that, he, that, he is, that pleases Him, that He receives joyfully. It's the fruit of our lips, the giving thanks to His name. And the very next verse, He says, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Um, when you see people in need, believers in need, and you respond by meeting those needs, it's, a, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It's funny, isn't it, how if you visit different churches, you can tell that the style, the way people worship is different. Some people are much more expressive than others. And some of you, that scares you to death. You don't want anybody being expressive. Let's just all have a very calm look on our face and sit still and don't move. And then other people, it's like, wow, they're just, it's, it's like energy flowing through their body they can hardly control. But we worship God in all of life. And that's because of who we are. We are a temple that's under construction. And each of us are living stones in that temple as believers. And he says back in 1 Peter that it's acceptable to God, which means welcomed with pleasure. I don't know if you ever thought about that when you, when you worship God. Maybe it's just driving down the street. And you suddenly break out in some praise to God as you're driving. Thank you, Father, for keeping my family safe. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing for our needs. Thank you for giving me this job I'm driving to. That that is worship, and it's well-pleasing to the Father. It's well-pleasing to the Father because we offer it up through Christ. Well, each of these Old Testament passages that are quoted then after this He's going to give scriptural support to all this, and he's going to quote several passages. And he mentions the people of God. The emphasis is on the fact that he chose us to be his people and that he loves us, and we're connected to him through faith in Christ. Now, I want you to notice these four things real simple. First of all, the, the nature of the church is that we are a people for God's own possession. If any of you still reads the King James Version... It says a peculiar people. It doesn't mean weird. What it means is, it means that we are set up, we belong to God only. We are peculiarly his. It's kind of like your toothbrush. You guys don't share toothbrushes, do you, in your house? You have your own toothbrush. It's uniquely set apart to you. That's what the word means. Peripoi eomai. And it means that it's, we, are, we are uniquely belong to the Lord Jesus Christ because he bought us. He laid down his life for us. And so the nature of, ch- of the church is that we are the people uh, for God's own possession. This reveals really the primary nature of the church. It, it's, it's just what we are in the most basic sense. We are the people for God's own possession. And God doesn't have any uh, buyer's remorse. I'm sure it's going to happen to all of us. We're going to get gifts. So we think, why in the world did you buy me that? I would never do that, but I'm sure some of you would. But, uh, <clears throat> and you know how it is when Christmas comes around, you start shopping for other people. You see four things you want for yourself. So you buy and put it in your trunk, and you don't bring it out until after the Christmas season. But sometimes you get buyer's remorse. God has never experienced buyer's remorse. He purchased you with the blood of his own son. That shows you how much he loves you. Romans 5.8 says, 
God demonstrated his love for us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he is pleased that he has purchased us for himself. We belong to God. Peter says we are a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. I would have you turn back to Exodus 19, but I think I won't do that because some of you don't have your Bibles with you. But in Exodus uh, 19, uh, God talks through. God speaks to his people and tells them that they uniquely belong to him, not because they're so special, not because there's something about them that he, he just needs so bad, but because he set his love upon them. That's why he purchased you. He set his love upon you. And this living God came to claim his people in the Old Testament, Israel, as his special possession. And in the New Testament, that prefigures the fact that he's purchased you through the blood of his son. We exist for God. I don't know if you think about that much, but that's something you ought to tell yourself every day. You exist for God. Um... I'm afraid that what happens to us is because we're so aware of ourselves. We know ourselves so well. We think, why would God ever want me? I don't know. (laughs) But he does. And so he gave his son to purchase you and to bring you into the the family. And we exist for God. Wow. When you think about the, the infinite majesty of God, that you can't even measure it, um, he lives in the church. And I forget who said this. I wrote this down years ago, but he lives within his people as a troubling, transforming, barrier-breaking presence. That is, he actually breaks down barriers between people. If you've ever noticed what happens within the body of Christ is people love each other who wouldn't normally love one another if they weren't a part of the body of Christ because they're so different. But he purchased us, and he is the troubling, transforming, barrier-breaking presence in the church of Jesus Christ. It's true, we don't see the Shekinah, we don't see a great light when the church meets, but Christ is here. And what we experience and what we see through the lives of people is we see Christ at work among his people. Wow. We're the subjects of God's wondrous redemptive action. We're not law-abiding Jews who kept the law, and therefore God's brought us into relationship with him. We are unwashed Gentiles. That's the way that Peter describes us, unwashed Gentiles. Listen to this, 1 Peter 4.3. He says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Now, the will of the Gentiles, he uses Gentiles. We're all Gentiles here probably. I don't know if we have any Jews here, but... all non-Jews are Gentiles. But when Paul uses, and Peter uses Gentiles, we're talking about people that have no relationship with God and no interest in God. And he says, before you came to faith in Christ, you lived long enough in your past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. That is living independently of God. And then he describes it this way. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, all he means by that is living life with no regard for the true and living God who made you for himself. 
who created you for himself. And as Augustine says, he created you in such a way that you never in all of life will find satisfaction until you have a relationship with God, because that's what you were made for. That's why he created you. Now, the next thing he talks about in verse 9 is uh, the role of a royal priesthood. We are called a royal priesthood. We're royal because we are a part of the kingdom of God. We're related to God through the Son, who is the king. And so we're a royal priesthood. A priesthood means that you have access to God. The book of Hebrews goes on and on and on and on about how we have free access to God in Christ. That we can come near him. That we can approach him. And he invites us to come. In fact, it's one of the most common words in the book of of Hebrews is we're coming to him, we're coming to him, we're coming to him. That's the characteristic of our life. We're a royal priesthood. This what a, what a way to say it, our premier closeness to God as his own people, that we are dear to him. It's an amazing truth. What, in it, what is it that has brought those who are far off near to the divine presence? It's not their good works or their religious activity. No, this new people of God has been reconciled to him through faith in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The reason it's called precious blood is what it accomplished. The blood of Christ is simply speaking of Christ's violent death under judgment in our place. That that's what he was willing to do in order to purchase you and to bring you into relationship with him. So we have come, we are brought near to God through the blood of Jesus. It's really interesting to compare the old covenant in the the Old Testament with the spirit of the new covenant in the New Testament. In the Old Testament... Uh, for example, in Exodus 3, 5, when Moses, when God appeared to Moses, God says, stay back, stay back. Don't come too close. We get to the New Testament, and we're told, like in Hebrews ten twenty two, let us draw near. Why is that? Because we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, before they send you into space, you have to get a space suit made for you so that you can exist in Outside of our atmosphere, right? Well, guess what? What God has done is he's clothed us in Christ and the righteousness of Christ so that we can live in the presence of God. You can get as close as you want to get. And that is going to be good enough for all eternity as you live in the presence of a holy, righteous God. So the way we come close is not religious grunting and groaning. Uh, It's an act of faith in Christ, trusting him and coming close. And so what we are supposed to be doing is fulfilling this role of a royal priesthood. We're to be a people of prayer. Later on in this book, Peter's going to say, you need to be sober and alert for the purpose of prayer because you have a unique function in the world. Your unique function in the world is to be the people of God. That's why he has brought us into this family so that we can offer up sacrifices of praise, so that we can live our life in response to him. No matter what happens in the world. Well, the third thing he's going to say is that the task of the church is to proclaim his excellencies. Now, to proclaim his excellencies, you could say it like this, to live in such a way that the excellencies of God is, becomes visible in the way you live. 
I'm not talking about the way you dress, you know, you wear a certain kind of clothes or your hair is a certain length or anything like that. It's how do you live your life? Do you live your life in fellowship with God? Do you live your life in response to the Spirit of God? This is the way the Bible describes it. It's living your life while you're abiding in Christ, you're resting in Christ and His work for you. That you understand the reason you're accepted with God is because of what Christ has done. And walking in the Spirit, that is, you're trusting the Spirit to guide you, direct you, empower you, and keeping yourselves in the love of God, the Father. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we rest in Christ, we walk in the Spirit, and we keep ourselves in the love of God. That is God's love for us. That's what we're called to do. And it's really important because the world desperately needs the world desperately needs the church to exist and to be what it's supposed to be. The world desperately needs to see an example of what is it like to live in fellowship with the true and living God, the creator and sustainer of all things. What is it like? And this is what we're supposed to put on display. Now, the purpose of uh, this revelation of God's divine glory is to confront the world's darkness with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like I say, it's not just proclaiming it in the sense of shouting it out, but it's living in response to the gospel in our everyday life. And when somebody says, why do you do that? And you say, because the God, God is my father through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given me the spirit so that I can experience this. I love this. Peter's the one who's going to say, you know, you should be ready to give a defense or an explanation of the hope that lies within you. If there was ever a time in the history of the world where Christians can display hope and it will be different than anything people see around them, it's today. If we get hopeless, if we start looking at something other than the living Christ, the resurrected reigning Christ, as a solution to this world's problems, then they're not going to see anything different than us than they see in every other group in, around the world who claims to have the answer to this world's problems. But if they see hope in us, they wonder, what in the world is you haven't... It's kind of like, remember the, the guys on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples of Jesus, and they say to Jesus, are you the only one in the area that didn't hear about what's happened, that this one we thought it was Messiah was crucified and laid in a tomb? Are you the only one? And then Jesus goes on to explain who he is, but, but without letting them know who he was, he simply went through the Bible and said, this is exactly what the Bible said was going to happen to the Messiah. Well, if we have hope and people are going to say, are you the only one in this community that doesn't know that the world's coming apart at the seams? That everything's just falling apart, the economy, uh, world peace, everything, uh, global warming. Some of you are worried about global warming and some of you are worried about people thinking global warming. <laughs> well, who, what, why should we have hope in days like this? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. And when somebody asks for you for the reason for your hope that lies within you, you have the answer. It's Christ. The life-changing relationship you have with Christ. I tried to make a point last week about the fact that as you walk with Christ, you become more like Christ. It's just a fact. It's, a, it's an absolute fact. 
the, when you, as you live your life walking with Christ, you get transformed and you become more like Christ. And you can ask my wife. And she would say, he's still got a long ways to go, but he's more like Christ today than he was 50 years ago when we got married, I can tell you that. Christ is changing us, and we are his witnesses, and we are those who offer up sacrifices of praise to him. And then finally, uh, the raw material of the church is revealed to us here in verse 10 of uh, 1 Peter 2. So look, let me turn there to verse 10. He says, uh, for you once were not a people. You once were not a people. Now what he's talking about, he's quoting from... uh, Isaiah and Hosea in these this is a couple of verses here. You were not, once not a people. You had no significance. You had no significant identity. Because God had a chosen people, the Jews. And then there were all the Gentiles. That's the rest of us. And we had no promise from God. And we had no covenant. And we had no assurance that God was going to do anything for us. But then Christ came. And now we have been made the people of God. So he says, you once, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had no, not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me explain to you what mercy is. Mercy is when somebody treats you based upon your need rather than what you deserve. Isn't that wonderful? You got somebody in your life like that? that treats you based upon your need instead of what you deserve. That's what God's done for us in Christ Jesus. In Hosea, the first two chapters of Hosea, which he is alluding to here, uh, God gives him a clear message. It's a gripping illustration of how God, in sheer grace, makes people who are no people at all the very people of God. He demonstrates God's grace, his unmerited, stubborn, sovereign, electing love, that he sets his love upon us. So what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be being the church of Jesus Christ, offering up sacrifices, living our lives as worshipers of the living God. The raw material of the church is, look around the room. And Paul says, when you look around the room, you'll say, there's not many rich, not many highborn." Not many people who are elite because God has chosen the foolish things, the things of no reputations. He's chosen us to be the people of God. Isn't that wonderful? So you're sitting at the table with people who are living in the presence of God through faith in Christ. If you're here today and and you've never uh, come to rest your faith in Christ, you could have somebody at the table what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I become a Christian? And they'll be able to tell you. Yes, we know how to, have a, to come to have faith in Christ. He wants you to believe the truth about him. He wants you to receive. That's, a, that's the amazing thing about Christianity. It's receiving a gift from God. That's why we call it grace. It isn't doing something that would cause God to love you or cause God to benefit you in some way. It is coming to receive what God is offering you freely in the gospel, his son. And his son is glorious, and he's worth living for. Nothing better to live for than the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me pray for you.
Our Father, we are overwhelmed with your grace. You have consistently poured out your grace in our lives over these years. We think about these 18 years as a local church, a little band of people, 19 people, I think there was that first Sunday, and meeting in homes and then in a little community center and all those things. And all the time you had your hand upon us, you kept blessing us with glorious spiritual treasures, and we are grateful for it. And we thank you, Father, for the people of God. Thank you for this church. Thank you for their love for Christ. Thank you for their commitment to follow Christ and to be witnesses of Christ. We pray now as we uh, sing and then as we have a meal, share a meal together, we pray there would be a time of warm and enjoyable and edifying fellowship with one another. Please be glorified. As we hear these testimonies a little later, I pray that, that our hearts would be moved with your faithfulness and your kindness towards us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.